You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06 and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 51, Scott Laysath Will Change Your Mind. On this episode, Nick chats with the sporting chef, Scott Laysath. Having a handful of television shows and an unusual start to his culinary career, Scott creates wild game dishes that use sound kitchen technique, yet easy enough for even a first-timer to grasp. Nick and Scott play a little game called Change My Mind, where Scott will take some of your misconceptions and get you to try something different. Cinch those apron strings tight. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to another episode here of The Huntivore. Tonight, I have a man with us who is a television celebrity, sharing with thousands of home-cooking hunters how to get the best from their game. He also goes out of his way to find the most obscure and odd wild eats across the nation. Before he could drive, he was a lead singer in a rock band dropping lyrics on the D.C. club circuit. Folks, we are joined by the sporting chef, Scott Laysath, tonight. Hey, Scott. Did you have the big hair when you were uh, in the nightclub? <laughs> yeah. You know, you didn't say mullet, so I guess that's uh, that's normally it's mullet. You know, it was it's it was in another lifetime when um, you know I'm in, I'm 15 year old, three years old, and singing rock and roll songs in nightclubs in D.C. And um, my parents thought I was playing at sock hops and school dances and things and. Um, it's much like my culinary career. It was not a well-planned thing. It just kind of happened. And usually that even comes out the best when you don't exactly have all your ducks in a row. You just kind of, at that point, sink or swim. And sometimes things turn out for the best on that. Um, well, and you know, as a high school student, that's not a, it's not a bad job, I guess, to sing in nightclubs, but um, yeah. Well, hey, you've now also put together an impressive resume. You're the author of uh, two books, uh, Sporting Chef Cookbooks. Um, you've been a regular on different segments, including HGTV. Uh, you're the host of your own show, Dead Meat, on Sportsman's Channel. And I was on YouTube just today, and you have a whole library of stuff um, on, on YouTube, which has been super helpful during this uh, quarantine lockdown that people can go ahead and just keep getting 
content from you. Uh, thank you so much for that content. But uh, what came first, the sporting or the chef? <laughs> you know, I've always hunted and fished. Um, and when I was in high school, my parents would make the mistake of leaving me and going away for a week or two. Um, so, and I've, I since then have gotten my payback from my high school son, <laughs> who when we would leave would do the same thing I did. People would come over, I would cook for them. Um, I liked cooking. Um, it was, you know, when I went to college, I would go out quail hunting in the morning. I went to school in Tucson and, um, and then come back and cook quail in the afternoon for my buddies. And it's always been a form of expression. Um, so I probably started cooking and hunting at around the same time, um, somewhere yeah, 10, 12 years old, you know, always, always fished and always hunted, grew up in Virginia. My dad was an Alabama farm boy and I've since moved West where there's unlimited opportunities for hunting and fishing out here. Yeah, that's awesome. So you take that then into like the professional kitchen. Now we, we step ahead into your um, your culinary at your culinary drive here, and you're working alongside folks who may or may not have been introduced to hunting and fishing. How did your colleagues, either both through culinary school or through being in a professional kitchen, kitchen, did they respond to your passion for wild foods? Well, it's, what what worked is that. I didn't go to culinary school. I have a degree in psychology. So when I was, I was, this is how I got into the whole cooking thing. I was working as a bouncer when I was finishing school and they said, Hey, do you want to be a manager? And I, I got, yeah, sure. So it was either make no money working with juvenile delinquents um, with my degree in psychology, or I got a two week training course on how to be a cook manager, bartender, got shipped from Tucson to Phoenix. And uh, within a few years, I was vice president of the 33-unit chain. So I couldn't have planned that. Um, but one of the things that I that I wanted to do was to make sure that those guys that were in the kitchen couldn't hold me for ransom. Cooks have a tendency to be a little bit, uh, they can kind of fly off the handle and they can be a little emotional. And so when somebody says on a Friday night, hey, I'm out of here, you can't tell me that. Then I'll say, okay, don't let the door hit you in the butt. I can hop in and do it. So that's what my whole cooking thing has been a matter of being able to keep up with the people that are working for me. Never did I work full shifts unless I had to, to fill in for somebody as a chef. I learned how to be a chef while I was learning how to run restaurants just like I was learning how to be a bartender. And then I started on HGTV in the late 90s. Um, we did 185 shows. Um, somebody had come to my restaurant and said, hey, do you want to help out on this HGTV show? And I went, yeah, why not? I had done some morning news, local news things, where you see the chefs talk about how they prepare a certain recipe. We had We would do wild game feeds at my restaurant, and then people would also say, I would, we would have game on the menu when people say, how come mine doesn't taste like yours? I'd say, well, bring it in. So people would bring in their deer and their salmon and their striper, and and we would prepare it for them and their guests at my restaurant. That's how the whole cooking thing started. So I've I've had cooks working with me that weren't outdoorsy types, but they still respect how to prepare the game, that game is different than domestic meat, requires different kind of cooking. And we all kind of, we all got passionate about how to prepare and how to improve how we prepare our wild game over the years. And my style of preparation has changed considerably since I started doing this several decades ago. Wow. I mean, you know, someone could say, man, what a bunch of luck that this guy has had. But at the same time, good <laughs> luck is opportunity meets skill at that point. So stuff was put in front of you and you just rose to the occasion. What a tale of of your start. Um, yeah, I don't think I could have planned it, this particular career path. I really don't. It just kind of – and I've had to kind of reinvent myself over the years doing different things, but it's always been about – cooking fishing game I, I'm gonna pull a quote from you I was watching um it was the 
It was the fish cakes. You were making fish cakes. It was the date night. At least I think that uh-huh. was the episode. But the quote that you end up saying um, was, "You know what? Write this down, uh, and you're gonna you're gonna make this recipe. So go ahead and write this down, and you're gonna eventually throw it away because you're gonna play with this. You're gonna you're gonna make it new again. So I wouldn't worry about it. And then you went on with the rest of the uh, the makeup. But what I loved about that statement was it's like you're ever playing with a recipe as much as you've got a cookbook and you're like, Hey, you know what? This is, this is one that I've played with. I've worked with, and I think I have it perfect. At some point you're going to take that same recipe and be like, you know what? We got to, we got to change this up a little bit. I love that fluidity that you have, um, with your dishes. Well, and I want for people, I want them, whether it's my recipe or anybody else's recipe, it's an outline. Um, I can always tell when somebody says, okay, how many, what, was that a tablespoon or three quarters of a tablespoon? I'll say, you're an engineer, aren't you? Because when it, it's food is, should be more of a creative, uh, feel more than, you know, if, if you want to know exactly how to cook, uh, then get into baking where you've got to measure everything, which is probably the reason I don't do any baking because it's more of an exact science. Whereas, what I do, whether it's sauteing, grilling, baking, uh, or roasting something, it's more of a feel. It's more of an art, it feels like to me, than it is an exact science. And I want people to adjust. What I tell people when they get a piece of meat, um, if you've got, let's say somebody gives you a deer steak, cut a little piece off it, put it into a skillet, and see how it behaves at medium rare, and then you can decide what you're going to do with it. So it's it's really the whole cooking thing to me is a form of expression and there's nothing cooler than when somebody takes a bite of something you just prepared and they go, wow, that is really good. Um, one of the things that I never do on my own TV shows, I never eat my own food on TV because have you ever seen somebody eat their own food on TV and not have their knees buckle and talk about how that's the greatest thing they've ever eaten? Um, it's not always that good. Sometimes it needs a little adjustment and that's, and that's, and food is subjective. So if you like it, doesn't mean everybody else has to like it. Maybe they want to do something different with it. So if in that recipe, if you're going, wow, this is really vinegary, do something about it. Use less vinegar. Don't throw the recipe out. Just adjust for your own personal taste. I love that. You're making it authentic. It's not turning into an infomercial where we're looking at the new latest and greatest trinket. And yeah, the the person that does take the bite is just falling over themselves on how good it is. I know I've even had a few recipes that I fall over myself on the way of handing the meat to the dog. Like, there you go. That's all yours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've had I've had some memorable failures over the year. And we did. I, I remember I wrote an article called The Good, The Bad. When the moose, the dog wouldn't eat, a friend of mine had said, man, I've got this moose sirloin, and it is the toughest thing I've ever had in my whole life. I go, just give it to me. I'll deal with it. We had a game feed at my restaurant, and so I turned it, I ground them up and made it into ground moose balls, but as that was the only thing left at the end of the night, and I'd watch people eat it, and it was like it would expand in their mouths, and they wouldn't know what to do with it, so... It doesn't always work, but that's how we learn. That's how we learn to cook, not by going exact, following a recipe, but by looking at it and going, oh, okay, I've got all those things, and then adjust flavors to suit your own palate. Awesome. These are some great tips. And, in fact, just with your culinary background, um, we're we're sitting here on the edge of our seats as a bunch of uh, just hunters who are home cooks, and we're always wanting to, to add one edge uh, to our game, whether it's either a technique, um, adding, you know, doing better with our knife work, or even um, just a different use of an ingredient. What are three things that we could, as home chefs, get a chance to up our game? What are three easy things that maybe we should take some time and work on that we're going to get the best results? You know, for, for knife work, what I've always suggested that people do is buy a 25-pound bag of carrots. Not going to set you back that much. And then learn how to use your knife. Learn how to keep an edge on your knife. You only really, if, if you've got a fillet knife, 
and an eight or 10 inch chef's knife. That's all you need. You don't need a million different knives or a big knife bag. I use basically two knives for everything. Um, but I know how to use them and you learn how to, how there's a pivot point on your knife. It's going to save you time. And if you've got that knife sharp, um, and that bag of carrots, by the time you're done with a 25 pound bag of carrots, your knife work is going to be much better. You're going to learn how to dice, how to, how to mince, um, how to do matchstick, that whole thing. And as far as sauces, there's a so the, the sauces that you can make in a blender that people traditionally are afraid to make, like, like a hollandaise. Um, one of the things that I do that impresses people is a hollandaise sauce in a blender. You throw some egg yolks in a blender, um, a little bit of Dijon mustard, some lemon juice, um, maybe a, just a little bit of vinegar if you, if you want a little, a little bit more acidic. Turn the motor on, and while that motor's running, drizzle in some hot butter. Just put butter in the microwave, get it nice and bubbly, dribble a few drops in at a time. That's going to set the yolks. Then while the motor's running, you pour the rest of the, of the butter in, the hot butter in, very slowly. Next thing you know, boom, you got hollandaise. If you want to put a little, a little shallot and some champagne vinegar in there and a little bit of tarragon, um, you can, you've got a, you've got a Bernays sauce now. Um, and it, and it's very, very simple. It doesn't have to be difficult. You don't need a double boiler and a whisk and to make it work. Um, it's, it's a lot simpler. One of the things that kills me that people do is they throw too much of their game away. For instance, with venison, they throw the shanks away. Those venison shanks and elk shanks and antelope shanks are some of the best eating pieces of meat on there. Um, it's You go low and slow, and it's going to be just like buco and it's going to fall off the bone. People throw it away, or else they'll put it on a bandsaw and cut it up into little treats for their dogs. Um, we also spend too much time breasting out our, our – spend not enough time. We'll breast out our game birds and then throw the rest away. People have to know what to do with the rest of the animal. And there's so much you can use on a wild turkey, for instance, just to breast out that wild turkey to me is criminal. That's a, that's wanton waste. You are speaking to the choir. I'm, I'm over here just uh, just raising the roof. I love to hear that because, yeah, one of my favorite dishes is using venison shanks. Uh, I do like a barbacoa, and we do uh, tacos. And I tell you, that's, that's something that my wife – I mean, she's a big venison eater anyway, but like not only just my wife and I love, but like even friends are like, oh my goodness, this is so good. What kind of beef is it? Or what'd you do to it? And it's like, no, no, this is all <laughs> venison. So they do, it It really comes out velvety smooth. They're like, it's not dry. It doesn't, you know, I'm not needing a whole, I mean, you're going to have a beer along with them, but at the same time, you don't have to have the beer to get liquid back in it. So yeah, you're preaching right. to the choir here. Well, and you know, it's the same thing. Like with the wild turkey, you, how often do hunters, and I think they just don't know how much you, how much else you can do, you know, with the legs and thighs, if you go low and slow, you braise those, you can pull all the meat off, you take the body and you, you roast it and you make stock out of it, just like you do with your Thanksgiving domestic turkey. And it's just, just so much more to it than just the breast fillet. Same thing, same thing with a mallard. You know, those big fat legs, if you go low and slow for a couple of hours, you take a bite into them and the, the meat comes off clean just like it does on a chicken wing. Yeah, it's amazing how a, like, a wet, low heat can just make even the toughest uh, piece of meat just melt out. I think it was uh, Hank Shaw that said, yeah, with enough time, enough moisture, and enough heat, even a rock will be soft. And so I, oh, I yeah. thought that was no, pretty yeah, funny. I know. And I know Hank, Hank well. He lives about 15 minutes from me. Well, cool. Tell him, tell him I said hi the next time you see him. I will do that. <laughs> Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. 
Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at huntmore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. Well, hey, Scott, down here, um, I put together something I think kind of fun. We're going to play a little game, and I don't know if you've seen the meme, um, but it's the wild game version of Change My Mind. I'm looking at the, there's a meme here of a gentleman sitting behind a fold-out table, and on front of it, he's got a large sign, and the sign has a very opinionated claim, and at the bottom of that claim, then it says, change my mind it's he's Uh he's wanting the debate he's wanting the argument and he's inviting you for it and it's it's usually end up being either a political meme or at the same time something absolutely hilarious and so what i want to do is play that game with you i am going to make a very opinionated claim and it's a claim that i may not hold myself. This is a collection of that I have heard from thousands of people and hundreds of times each, and I would like you to change their mind on that opinion. Do you think you're ready for the uh, challenge? Sure. Awesome. Number one, being here in, uh, in, in Michigan with our Upper Peninsula friends, an old cedar swamp buck is best used to feed your dog referring to the gaminess and how it all tastes like cedar. Change my mind. You know, I got to disagree on that. I mean, an old cedar swamp buck is not going to taste as mild or as perhaps good as a young doe. However, all is not lost. Um, If you've got getting back to that, let's just see how it behaves in a skillet with a little salt and pepper and medium rare, that's what I would do with it. If it's if it's going to be a little off tasting, I don't. If it's bad, I don't eat it. I'll feed it to the dogs. But just because it's an old cedar swamp buck doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be off tasting. I've had deer that were basically the same age, same sex, shot in the same area, and they don't taste the same. They they had you know. The, when all meat tastes like it's exactly the same, I don't want to eat it anymore. There's going to be variables. So you just have to treat it different. So if you've got an old buck, that'll still make a hell of a stew. You can still braise those shanks, and it'll be just fine. If there's if if there's some tough areas, then you can either tenderize it. But really, I'm just going to go low and slow. That old cedar swamp buck I'm going to make stew out of. You can grind it up, mix it with some pork shoulder, and make make a meatloaf or make a make some meatballs or burger with it. But all is not lost, and I'm not going to waste that whole animal by feeding my dogs. I have two English setters, and it would take them a long time to get through that whole animal anyway. <laughs> That's a great, great setup. One thing I th- you said on that too was really just you know try it out, test it first for yourself. Um, take a little piece off, give it a, a quick fry, get medium medium uh, rare, and try it. See what you what you are going to do with it. I think it's on yeah, your yeah. If it's if it's if it's tough, go low and slow, slice it thin. Ac- <laughs> Excuse me, go low and slow, slice it thin across the grain. All is not lost. You don't want to disguise if if something is bad. You know, I had somebody many years ago who said, man, I've got this tuna that's been in my refrigerator for a couple of weeks, and it's starting to smell bad. What should I do? You know, the answer seems obvious. Throw the tuna away. <laughs> but that that buck that's going to be maybe just a little bit off, all is not lost, a little marinade, proper cooking, and you're going to find that there's an, there's an excellent use for that buck at the dinner table. Excellent. Number two. This is actually a reference back to one of your shows, um, but then a little tangent that I've also taken. Eating crow is as bad as having to eat your own words, referring ah. to eating crow. 
Well, and crow, by the way, has no flavor at all, as far as I could tell. Uh, we did a crow hunt in Georgia. We shot 40 or some odd crows, and they're really fun to hunt. It's like it's like a duck hunt. You're camoed. You're in blinds. They're really smart. They send the first one in to kind of see how things are. You let that one go. Um, they're very social. They let each other know when bad things are happening. Same thing with pigeons. Uh, barn pigeons, we've shot across from a dairy farm. They're, they taste just like a big dove. The crow, to me, crows don't eat spoiled meat. They only eat fresh meat. So when we think of crows and buzzards, they, they have two very different eating patterns. Crows, to me, tasted like nothing, no flavor. It's what you do with it. So uh, eating crow, uh, literally and figuratively, are two very different things. Eating them, there's just nothing wrong with them. Well, hey, that's refreshing. That's good to know. Um, yeah, I, my family owns a, a turkey farm, and we've got a large uh, mix mill where we mix the grain uh, to make feed. And so that's where the, the pigeons came in. Um, my father gave me uh, the green light, and he's like, I need these things gone. And I'm like, well, I hear they're good eating, so yeah, let's get after it. So me and a buddy and a couple 12 gauges later, we were able to have a mess of pigeons. Um, yeah, like you said, big doves, and they made excellent poppers. I tell you, that breast right. was real big. It was almost like a two-biter at that point. And they're fun to hunt, too. I mean, they, they'll decoy you. You put a little robo-dove out, or robo-duck. We had a little couple of one-winged robo-teal and threw down some just some rags, um, and they, they're... They're very, these were very cooperative and they're, they eat just fine. Well, good deal. Staying on, uh, on bird here. Um, you actually alluded to this a little bit, but getting the best out of a turkey or waterfowl or even an upland bird is just to breast them out. Yeah, that's a bad thing. That's, that's what too many of us do as, as you know, as we, as we touched on, um, you know, for waterfowl, I'm going to cook a whole teal. I'm going to cook whole quail. But for the bigger birds, like for a mallard, the breasts and thighs cook differently. If you cook a whole mallard and the breasts are medium rare, the legs are not edible to me. And if you if you go to a, a duck feed where they're, they're serving whole ducks, you'll notice that the legs don't get eaten if the breasts are cooked medium rare. Unless you're going to go, unless you're going to braise the whole thing until it turns into pot roast, um, which I don't really like to do that with the breast. I like the breast medium rare. I like them about 130 to 135 degree internal temperature. But if you do that with the legs, it's not going to work. Wild turkeys, if you've ever tried to chase one, you know you can't catch them. They run really fast. <laughs> And so it's not like a domestic chicken that sits around for six weeks and then turns into dinner. Um, so that tough sinewy meat is going to have to be gone. You have to go low and slow, but that meat's eventually going to pull right off the bone. Um, you can do all sorts of things with it with those waterfowl legs. I save all of the legs from the bigger ducks, the, the mallard pintail, canvas backs. And then once I get enough of them and I've, I've plucked them rather than peeled them, but you can you can just peel them also. I'm going to brown them in a roasting pan, and I'm going to throw in some celery, carrot, onion, maybe a can of beer. I just need about a half inch of liquid in there. Cover it up with foil, 325-degree oven. In about two hours, those duck legs are going to start coming off the bone just like a chicken wing. When they When they start to come off the bone, I take them out, cool them off, and when I'm cooking the duck breasts, I'm going to put those legs back on the grill, brush them with a little of the same sauce. I put them on the plate, and people go, what in the heck did you do to these duck legs? They're the most tender thing I've ever had. Well, because I went low and slow, and I didn't throw them away. I used the whole animal. I make duck stock, turkey stock. If you've got pheasants other in other upland game, you can make a big pile of bone broth. Just using all the leftover carcasses, bones, legs, parts that you would normally not eat and make a stock out of it, you'll know when it's done properly because when it cools, it turns to jello. And it's so much better than adding a bouillon cube or something to one of your dishes. You're using the game stocks that you made from the animals that you brought home. 
I tell you, yeah, the amount of gelatin that you can get out of a leg quarter of of some of these animals, or even like you said, throwing in the whole carcass. Yeah, it does. It right. just turns it into you get it cooled down, and that sucker's just you know just jiggling there, and oh, right, the right. velvet you get off that it is it you can't match it. Same thing with the when you've got nice fatty plump mallards. If you render down that fat, that fat's really good. People pay a lot of money for duck fat. I always have a block of it, and I can just cut off a corner of it and use it for sautés. Um, all you know, anything that you would do with bacon grease or butter, you can use duck fat. So let's say you're you're taking some of that fat. We're going to take a quick time out from the game, but you're taking some of that duck fat. You've got it in the pan right now. Do you run it through some cheesecloth before you put it uh, into your usable block, or is it just you pour it out into a, a mason jar, let it solidify, and use as is? I do the second thing. I don't use it. I I go through a lot of cheesecloth when I'm making stock, but when I'm doing the the rendering of the of the breast, and if you put if you put a bunch of duck fat in there and just add water to it, um, the water is going to uh, evaporate. But meanwhile, and what's going to be left is going to be the duck fat. So you're going to get some little cracklings out of it by the time it's all done. But if you put some water in there, that's going to help render that fat down without burning it without browning it. Um, so really, if you just take some duck skin, duck fat, throw it into a skillet with some water and go really low on it, um, once the water evaporates, you're going to have the duck fat. It's going to be clear. Just pour that into a mason jar, and once it sets up, you can you can deal with the solids. Good deal. I'm going to take this whole segment, and I'm going to shove it over onto my good buddy who loves uh, he loves waterfowling. And I am. I'm working on him hard to start saving leg quarters. <laughs> I think he's got. He's done it for me. He hasn't touched them, but I'm like, dude, save every every Canada like leg quarter. Just put it in there. Right. I'll tell you what to do with it. And we're once this is all over, maybe we can get together. You know, we're gonna, we're going to be going crazy to do a barbecue once this whole quarantine is done. So yeah, maybe right. that's what we're going to have to do is something low and slow, and then yeah, finish with a little uh, little butter sauce on top of some of those uh, Canada legs. And on those on the Canada breasts, what I do, I butterfly them because you know they're so thick, especially on the graders. Um, it's a lot easier to control the temperature if they're roughly the thickness of a breast instead of a hunker breast. Um, I've found that it's a it's a lot easier to cook medium rare consistently than when they're big, thick uh, goose breasts like that. Gotcha, gotcha. I've been toying with. In fact, I think it's one of my favorite meta, uh, version or ways to cook venison if i'm doing a whole like a large section of backstrap or even uh, a piece of sirloin or top round i like to do a reverse sear where i'll start it in the oven first and then go to the hot pan is that something that i could do with a goose breast if i did want to keep it all together yeah absolutely and especially if you've got something you know like a lot of the pellet grills don't really sear but they give really good flavor um so, you know, put it in a pellet smoker, get a lot of flavor in there, go low and slow, get it to maybe 125, 130 degrees, and then slap it in that hot skillet. To me, that's that's delicious. And, you know, the whole the myth of one of the myths is that searing meat on the outside seals in the juices, right? We've heard that on TV all the time. It doesn't. It doesn't seal in the juices. It It just makes it taste better when it's seared on the outside. So... Um, low and slow, and then post sear makes complete sense to me. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I know we're going to have some listeners that are going to be pausing this and rewinding. They're going to write this stuff down. This is gold. All right, this <laughs> one, this one's going to be uh, fishing. This is going to be down by the pond. Skin on fillets taste better and are worth the time to scale. You know, it is to me. I like crispy skin. Um, and it's same thing with whether it's a, whether it's a duck or a, or a trout or whatever. Um, if it's not crispy, I'm not really crazy about it. When I cook, when I serve fish, I like to serve it crispy skin side up. So I'll put it skin side down first, whereas normally, you know, chefs put presentation side down first. Um, I'm putting skin side down and getting it nice and crispy. Then I'm going to flip it over. Um, until it's just done, but I like that crispy skin. If it's not crispy, 
not so much. And, you know, people, if they don't want the skin, all they're going to do is take their thumb and their forefinger and pull it off. But for those of us that like it, we can still we can still enjoy the skin. I like it crispy. Good deal. Good deal. I, I've been that's one thing that like getting a mess of bluegills like there's sometimes you, you're at the end of the night. You know, you're, you've already had several beers out on the lake. You want to just get back home. But now you got all this fish to clean because it was a great day on the lake. And the easy way is just to fillet the one, you know, fillet it off and then quick yep. take the skin yeah. off and you're, you're done with it. Um, but to, to take the extra time to be able to scale it off, I, I'm glad to hear you say that it's worthwhile because I know I look at like perch fillets and man, they do. They get that crispy skin and even like a bluegill fry, it, that skin like makes it have that little bit of a curl. And I feel it just adds that little bit of extra, extra tooth to it that as you, you well, bite and, into and, it. And then when you eat the fins and things, they're like little potato chips and they're nice and crispy. And that, so I... So those little panfish, I love cooking them whole um, and just taking the meat off them as opposed to filleting them because you're going to lose a little meat when you fillet it um, eat as good as you possibly would be. I, I like keeping keeping the skin on. To me, I love cooking whole crappie, um, pan frying them, getting them nice and crispy, breaking off those little potato chip um, fins on them, and just picking the meat off it. I love that. That's good. I, my, uh, my five-year-old son is big into bluegill. That's like, it's become one of his things. Um, I'm, I'm half like tempted to just fry up a whole one and set it on his plate and see if it, if it messes with him a little bit, just, (laughs) just to have that shock factor be like, you like fish? Well, here is a fish at the same time. I don't want to turn him away, you know, but at the same time, it feels like the great practical dad joke that I need to at least sometime pull. Sure. Well, maybe give him another year or two. We'll see what happens. There you go. All right. This is one that's probably come into the headlines, especially now. Domestic meat is safer than wild game meat. You know, over the years, I've had people say, ask me, well, what about all those wild game diseases? And I'll go, all right. Like what? Well, you know, we've heard so much about E. coli and all that. I go, you know, I'm not rubbing feces on my ground venison um and i when i process the meat myself i know that it's done properly um you know you get a few hamburger stairs around the u.s next thing you know you can't get a medium rare hamburger in a, in a restaurant anymore um i if i grind my own venison if i even if i put a little bacon in there and pork when i'm doing the grind i know what's in that venison and to me, that's going to be safer than anything I can get that somebody else processed. You have to figure. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm by no means knocking the meat industry because I I eat domestic meat all the time. But um, a lot of the the things that people worry about with wild game meat, you know, I tell people if a duck has flown back and forth from Canada a couple of times, that's going to be a pretty healthy animal. Um, as opposed to a six-week-old chicken that's been, you know, even the free-range chickens, you know, for a couple of weeks, they can kind of run around elbow to elbow next to the other chickens. But for the most part, you know, they're raised in pretty close quarters. Um, so um, I, I have no fear of wild game meat. There are some region-specific problems with the chronic wasting and things that we need to be aware of. Um, but for the most part, I'm I'm going to cook my wild game medium rare, for, you know, for the antlered game. I'm going to get it just done on the birds, um, on the upland game. But I'm not scared. I don't have exact statistics on me, but I got to think that wild game meat in general, in my opinion, would be safer than domestic meat. I think we we hear so much more about domestic meat outbreaks in E. coli and salmonella and things than we do in wild game. And I think it's more prevalent in domestic. I'm not an expert on the subject. That's just my opinion. Gotcha. You also mentioned that, you know, you take the extra time and care to process your own game at that point. There's a hundred reasons why you're going to go to a processor that's going to be able to handle that animal for you. I mean, 
conditions, temperature. It's going to be super hot when you know when you get that animal, and it's got to be one of those things you got to handle right away. Uh, you could be out of state where yeah we're falling into these uh, CWD zones where that animal can't leave, so you need to get it processed there. There's a whole list of things, um, but I'm kind of in your camp where I love the idea of being able to bring that animal at that point it's the whole animal to my butcher block and be able to then break it down into the cuts and turn it into the food that's going to be for my family what what are some things that people want to want to think about when they're they're cutting up their own animal when they're processing their own animal what are some things they're going to want to think about well one of the things that i do is i remove anything that's not muscle um unless it's let's say like a deer's shoulder, I'm going to cook a deer's shoulder whole. I'm going to let slow, moist heat turn that deer's shoulder into something like pot roast, as opposed to taking my knife and going through each little section of muscle on that shoulder and then grinding it or doing whatever. That, to me, that's going to be pot roast. Um, the necks, the same way. Um, I don't throw my necks away. I think makes, the necks make great roasts. But on the hind quarter, the part that all too often gets turned into sausage and burger and that, I take my knife and I go through and I separate each muscle, get rid of every bit of silver skin. And very often when I cook those hindquarter muscles, if I don't overcook it and when I serve it, I slice it across the grain, people mistake it for backstrap all the time. Um, so be very careful. Get rid of Get rid of the junk on your on the on the cuts. You know, one of the things that kills me with backstraps, whether it's processors or home cooks, is instead of keeping it in whole chunks, they do this really annoying process of butterflying that butterflying them into little medallions. And I haven't been able to find a good reason why people do that. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you get the backstraps and they're butterflied into backstrap steaks. Yeah, they and, like want more surface area or something. They want to make their little bit go extra. So, yeah, they take uh, it and cut it halfway through and fold it out. Right, but I'd rather have the whole – I'd rather have a six-inch chunk of loin than little medallions because that way I can butterfly that whole line, loin, stuff it, tie it. If I want to do steaks, I can do that with it too. If I want to do a big steak out of it, I can do that too, but – when you're processing, think about what you're going to do with that meat and don't grind the whole animal. If and, and For me, I would rather not grind a whole bunch of animal. If somewhere down the line I want to do a burger, I'll take a piece of that hindquarter and I'll saw it and I'll grind it with a little uh, pork, uh, pork shoulder or bacon pieces and it's going to taste fresher than if I pulled a frozen patty that's been in my freezer for a year or so this is going to taste like a fresher burger if I thaw it and grind it and then cook it. I love it. I love it. This next one. You can't be a cool Instagram hunting chef without a grill that has Wi-Fi on it. <laughs> you know, I happen to have a grill that has Wi-Fi. Um, oh, my I goodness. But, <laughs> excuse me, I got it. Uh, because from a sponsor um, from Camp Chef, but I love it. The Camp Chef Woodwind has a Wi-Fi deal that, and it's got four different probes. That let's say if you've got four different pieces of meat in there, you look at your phone. You can look at the internal temperature, the temperature of of each piece of meat. You can look at the internal temperature of the of the grill, and you can adjust how much smoke you're getting on it. So. That's pretty handy. Um, but I also have a smoker made by Camp Chef also that's called the Smoke Vault. All it is is it's a big box with a propane source, and you use whatever you want for smoke. So I've got pear trees here. I'll put some chunks of pear wood in there, maybe a couple of briquettes just to keep it going, and a thing of water. And that's going to give me a very different kind of smoke. So you know, you can you can be cool with or without a Wi-Fi grill, um, but they are pretty handy to have. And, you know, they also make Wi-Fi thermometers that you can put in the meat, 
stick a little thing that looks like a walkie-talkie on your belt, and it'll beep when it gets to your desired internal temperature. It's okay if you're doing other stuff. I've, I still manage to multitask and not always do it very well and burn a few things from time to time, which if you've got the Wi-Fi thing happen, maybe you won't be quite so distracted. Um, you can still cook without it, and you can you can be cool with or without a Wi-Fi grill. How's that? That sounds wonderful. Uh, I will be honest. This is more of a, a running gag because uh, I can't afford one right now. And my buddy um, on Adam on the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, he's got that same woodwind uh, grill. And I always yeah, just kind of they're pretty cool. They yeah. are neat. They are wonderful. <laughs> and I'm always like, listen. And I like act like I put on the foil hat, and I'm like, I don't want the government getting a look at what I'm cooking because it's connected <laughs> to the Wi-Fi, and right. you know they're gonna mess with it, they're gonna hack it, and they're gonna move it up five degrees, and it's gonna mess my time up. And I do, I just I play that up. But yeah, it's definitely like the I'm I'm gonna be on the end where I'm gonna poke poke fun at him, but at the same time, as soon as I get enough uh, funds put together. I'm going to be eating crow because I'm probably going to have myself a woodwind. <laughs> well, and what's cool about the woodwinds, too, is they've got a thing called a sidekick um, that the other ones don't have to do the post sear. Um, so it comes it comes out of the yeah, – I undercook it on the, on the woodwind, and then you slap it over onto the sidekick, and it's got a, a cast iron griddle top on it or a grill, and that's, that's where you get to sear – after it comes out of there, they're really handy. And that's a good deal. And then, yeah, if you're making, you know, big dinner for a lot of people, like you said, having the capability to have a couple thermometers going at one time that you can alter from your phone or from a device that does help when you're, you're multitasking at that point. I am a terrible multitasker. So <laughs> I've got little buzzers and timers going on all around me. And, yeah, I'm right next to the grill. I'm right next to the smoker. But that does, that's not to say that, yeah, things, things do happen. Yep. All right. This is one that's going to probably get you some hate mail, uh, depending on which way you, uh, you go. It's a big conversation here in Michigan. Uh, Half-free morel mushrooms are toxic and should be avoided? Um, they're not toxic. Um, I mean, unless something's happened between the last time I ate them. And, you know, they're, um, they're, I think they're a lot milder to me than the other morels. Um, and, you know, it's, we don't have them here like you have them. Um, the last time I had them was in Michigan. Um, but, I don't. I don't see the. I don't see that there's any problem with half-free morels. Um, I. I would personally. I prefer the flavor of morels, but the. I. I don't. What. What. Well, who's going to get mad about me saying you should eat half-free morels? I don't, I don't think anybody. Don't think more of these not. keyboard. Uh, keyboard mushroom hunters that they get on the forum and they just say like, "Don't touch them because they are poisonous," and they. I don't. They don't really have a reference at that point. So I'm glad to hear that you know because I've I have found several half freeze and people are like oh be you know be careful about them because you know sometimes they are toxic sometimes they're not and it's like listen don't give me the sometimes like we need to I figure don't think this they're out. Sometimes I don't think they're toxic. Sometimes you know Hank Shaw would be the better resource on that. He's the mushroom guy. Gotcha. I'll have to ring up uh, Hank on that one because yeah, give Hank a call. Yeah, I, I've I've. I've never even thought twice about eating them. I think they're, they're fine. Beautiful. I think what really kind of throws people off is when you cut the stalk. I think they're referring to the ones that do have that pith on the inside, right. the cotton right. little thing, and that's the ones to avoid. I think that's a completely different mushroom species in itself, and I think that's what has thrown people off. Because if you do cut open a half-free, yeah, it isn't connected all the way through. It is just connected at the top. But that stalk, that um, the thing holding it up, is completely yep. hollow at that point. So right, right, good. That's gl I'm glad to hear that. And yeah, I'll I'll make sure to eat them to keep them back. Keep I'll keep the hate mail back, and we'll just keep on throwing them down. <laughs> right. And this one's going to hit also close to home, just being that you know what our grocery stores are are running out of meat. It seems, or at least for a little while. I've I've heard that some of now at least some of the 
Uh, the big packing plants are able to to get back up and running. But hunters and anglers are not worried about this grocery store meat shortage, and everyone should take notice. Well, it, you know, the hunters and anglers, the successful ones aren't too worried about it. I told my wife, I said, we're good until about September, then we may have to start eating some frog legs. But, you know, we've got lots of meat. I also talked to somebody recently who said they're, they're starting to rethink their catch and release philosophy and maybe start keeping a few more um, for the next pandemic. Um, I noticed, you know, seven, eight weeks ago, you'd go to the grocery store and go, wow, where's the chicken? Where's the eggs? Where's this and that? Seems like we're getting back to semi-normal now, but, you know, those of us who hunt and fish, and one of the things that I've been talking about with a number of different groups over the last couple of months is what to do with the fishing game that we have in our freezers. Um, and this is a really good time to use up. If you've got trout that you've been moving around in your freezer for three or four years, maybe now's the time to either throw it out or cook it because it's not going to get any better by the fifth year. Um, so hunters and anglers also know, a lot of us know how to, what to do with our meat. Um, and so if we go to the grocery store and we see that all they have is, is a cheap cut of meat, well, you know, hopefully we know what to do with it because we've cooked lesser cuts of venison. Um, but if we've got meat in the freezer, if we've got even random pieces of fish, those are fish cakes, that's fish chowder, little bits and pieces of deer and elk and whatever, you can grind that up and make burgers out of it or a stew, all sorts of things. This is a good time to make use of what's in that freezer. You know, during the last couple of months, my garage is clean and organized. My freezers have never looked better. My office is still kind of a mess, but, you know, we've had a lot of free time. Let's use up what's in the freezer. Yes. I think also this is a time as hunters and anglers, if we really want to uh, as people are noticing, to be able to turn some heads and have really people thinking about the lifestyle choices that we've taken by being close to uh, our food acquisition, that maybe some trout diplomacy or some venison diplomacy can happen. <laughs> uh, just taking a you know a meal over and saying, "Hey, we're going to drop off a meal for you. Uh, you know, dinner's on us tonight," and to have something wild game and have them enjoy that. And I think that opens up conversation, that opens up doors there, especially for folks that are really, really on the edge. And 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 I don't, you know, if somebody doesn't feel comfortable hunting, that's okay. Um, what 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 gets me is people who have given up hunting because they don't necessarily know how to prepare the, the game that they bring home. Uh, you know, the victory for me is when I give people permission to cook their ducks less. And then I come back and see them the next year and they go, hey, we don't give our ducks away anymore. We love them now. We cook them less. And a lot of it is just a matter of learning what to do with it. So, you know, when I, when during the middle of this thing, I come home with a turkey in the back of my truck and my neighbors go, hey, nice turkey, you know, so <laughs> hopefully, and then, I, and then I give them a, some of the turkey or I make a little, a little stew or something out of the legs and thighs they realize why it is we do what we do. And the fact that we're getting out and doing those things now and turkey hunting now when everybody else is stuck in the house, it feels pretty good to sit to hunt, sit laying up against a tree um, before daybreak and know that you've got a good chance of bringing home dinner instead of having to go to the grocery store. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Those early mornings where you're, yeah, you are, you get to stretch your legs and it's like, what what pandemic? I'm not even thinking about that I'm, right now. I'm out of the house, leaning on a tree, listening to the everything wake up. There's just no better time. Well, hey, Scott, we have come to the crescendo of, of my show. This is where we're going to get uh, some real detail out of you. Grilling season is just about to take off, at least for our, our folks that are are scared of, of the, the winter grilling. I know I, mine's been sitting here on the deck. It's been well used. Um, but if we're going to use a piece of venison, we're ready to get out and we're ready to uh, get that thing fired up. What is a grilled dish that everybody should try at least once that maybe takes a little bit of work? You know, the stuff that I do is low maintenance. 
So if it's if it's up to me, I'm gonna get a deer steak, and if I if I happen to have a back strap, that's great. If it's a top round or a bottom round, those work fine too. Um, if it's a little tough, I may hit it with a little tenderizer, like a jacquard. Little it's got the little needles in it that tenderize it a little bit. Normally, it doesn't need that. I like. Um, I keep a garlic and herb compound butter that's basically you take softened butter, you add some either roasted or minced, fresh minced garlic, whatever herbs you have on hand, a little sea salt and, and black pepper, and then you form that into a kind of a, a tube, wrap it in plastic, stick it in either the freezer or the refrigerator, so then it sets up. So as that deer steak is cooking. Once I flip it the first time, it's almost done anyway. I'm going to take a couple slices of that garlic and herb compound butter and just set it right on top of that steak. And that's going to get infused into the meat as it's done cooking, because we know that searing meat on the outside doesn't seal in the juices. You're going to put that butter on there and it's just going to be, it's just going to add fat to an otherwise very lean piece of meat, but you're still going to taste deer. Um, one of the things, you know, you had mentioned the poppers, one of the things with the poppers is they're really good, but they don't taste like deer or duck or dove or pigeon or whatever. They taste like, for a lot of people, they'll marinate it in teriyaki for 48 hours and then, you know, do all these things that make it taste like bacon and jalapeno. And it's really good, but I want my deer steak or my elk steak to taste like deer or elk, and I don't want to. I don't want to distract from that. So I'm going to make it very simple. Garlic, herb, compound butter on top. That's all I need. I love that idea of taking something that's, you know, run-of-the-mill butter and then turning it into your own garlic butter to have on hand. That's a great tip and, right there. That's a pro chef tip right there. Flavors. I mean, if you do, you do lemon and lime zest with a little... Uh, maybe some green onions and things, and you make a compound butter out of that. You you take roasted red bell pepper and puree that with butter. Now you've got a roasted red bell pepper butter that you can put on top of your quail or your pheasant or your turkey after it's done cooking. And then you set it on the table, and it just all this seasoned, flavorful butter just runs down all over the meat as these people are looking at it going, man, does that look good. I've always tried to find, like, if, if you know, especially during the winter, like, all right, I got to go in, I got to get some fresh herbs. I don't have anything growing in the garden. Um, and I get a big thing of uh, thyme or a big thing of rosemary. And then I use what I need, but at the same time, it's like, man, that's a big bundle. I, I don't need all that rosemary and it's going to, it's going to wilt and it's going to dry out before I get a chance to use it. Especially in this time of a pandemic, trying to make sure that we use right. everything we have. What a great idea to take whatever leftover, uh, herbs that you do have, that's one way to maybe even make it last longer. Does that butter It'll freeze well? Stick, yeah, stick it in the freezer. And then and then you can just slice it. You can you can take it, unwrap it. So if you just put down some plastic wrap, take a pound of butter that's softened, put that in the middle, add all your little other stuff in there, or else mix the whole thing up in a bowl and turn it into a loaf on top of that plastic wrap. You roll it up. Twist each end of it so it's going to be like a round tube now. Stick it in the freezer. All of those little butters, whenever you need it, you just hack off a couple of slices, put it on top of whatever it is you're cooking. You can have your fish compound butter, what you know that's more citrusy, um, more of a peppery rosemary one for your antler game. Do whatever you want, but it's going to and you can use up a lot of that stuff in your in your uh, in your herb compartment. Um, you can put some onion in there, all sorts of stuff, and that butter will last forever. I love it. I love it. This is great stuff. This last one here, um, we got a call from the Half Free Morel Haters Group, and uh, this they're going to put you down. This is your last meal scenario. You're going to the electric chair. But before there, we are going to get you your one last meal. It does have to contain wild game. But you get to have whatever you want and however you want. So lay out and describe us the meal. And and know that the more that you describe it, the more time that you are buying to stay on this earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, 
one of the things that that we've heard over the years is that you you should take meat out and let it rest, bring it to room temperature for a half hour before you're ready to grill it. And I've since learned that that's not true. You can take a frozen piece of meat and does the same thing, whatever. But mine, again, is going to be a well-seasoned, this is going to be an elk loin steak. Uh, maybe I'll do a few different medallions so I can get a little bit more sear on the outside. Um, I'm going to let it sit in olive oil, garlic, and rosemary, and a little bit of salt and pepper for 24 hours. And I learned this um, when we were in South Africa. Everything that they cooked, whether it was kudu, gimsbuck, any any of the little animals, the springbuck, all they did was let it soak in olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper for 24 hours, and then grilled it over a hot, really really white hot wood coal smoky grill until it was rare to medium rare and then they did very little with it i on the other hand i'm going to cook it that way but on the side i'm going to saute some some morel mushrooms in butter garlic and rosemary and so i'm going to take that well seasoned and by well seasoned again Olive oil, and it's floating in olive oil. It's not just a little bit of olive oil on top. Olive oil, garlic, salt, pepper. Um, I'm going to cook it rare to medium rare, more rare than medium rare, and then I'm going to let it rest for a few minutes because I want to get those the juices inside to redistribute within that piece of meat so that when I cut into it, all this juice doesn't run out. And then I'm just going to heap on those garlic, rosemary, butter, morels, and I'm going to wash it all down with a really, really good glass of red wine. And I'm sure those morels were half-freeze just to make a statement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to mix my half-freeze in with the, with the regular morels, and they're going to be just fine. But it's my stuff is simple. I don't... I don't want to overcomplicate game. I want people to use the recipes that I have. And the way I cook at home, I'm, I'm cooking in-season vegetables. You know, lately I've been getting rid of a lot of canned stuff. You know, you talked about the date night thing that I was doing on Sportsman Channel's Facebook page. Um, you know, green beans, canned potatoes, stuff I didn't even think I had in the pantry. I'm getting rid of it. Um, and, and maybe it's time to start stocking up with stuff you might actually use. But my food is straightforward and simple, and I want other people to do the same thing. And then if they want to adjust, they can adjust any way they want to suit their own personal preference. But, you know, your recipe should be an outline. Um, make, it, make it fit your own personal taste. Now, Scott, as as people are going to be listening to the episode, they're going to be like, "Man, I got to I got to find more." If they already haven't seen you and already know who you are, they're like, "Man, I got to know more about Scott. I got to know about this sporting chef." Where where can we find you? And I understand you got quite the website with uh, quite the the uh, recipe directory going. We do. If you go to sportingchef.com, it's all free. There's hundreds of recipes there for fish and game. Um, I have a blog on Winchester. I am also the cooking editor for Ducks Unlimited magazine and have been for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years. Um, the Sporting Chef Show airs on the Sportsman Channel on Sundays at 1.30 Eastern, um, first and second quarter. Third and fourth quarter, it's dead meat. Um, and we've got, we've got to shoot it out there and shoot a few more dead meat shows because we've only got one out of the series that we need to do for this year. We went and shot uh, feral hogs in a golf cart on a golf course with um, with uh, AR-15s and suppressors and, hey, it's Texas, and night vision and thermal scopes. And if you've spent any time looking at the kind of destruction that the wild pigs do, it's just crazy what they do. So um, – Dead meat, third and fourth quarter, Sporting Chef, first and second quarter. You can go to the Sportsman Channel website. That'll tell you what shows are going to be airing. We do have, um, if you go to the SportingChef.com website, go down towards the bottom, sign up for our newsletter. We send you a e-cookbook of sorts, and then um, we send you recipes and things like that. And 
um, discounts for our sponsors. We, you know, you, if you watch the Sporting Chef show, you'll notice we've only got four or five sponsors total. It's not an infomercial. We want you to see all the other people that we have on the show. It's not just me. I've got eight or ten other people that contribute to the show. So if you don't like what you're looking at, just give it a couple minutes and you'll see somebody else. Sounds good. Sounds like the weather here in Michigan. You know, just wait five minutes. <laughs> That's it. Well, Scott, this has been incredible. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be able to to hang out with us. I'm going to have you hold on a second as uh, as I let my uh, my audience go, folks. We have got some pro tips that have just been thrown at you. Whether it's really just keeping all of your leg quarters from your waterfowl and cooking them low and slow till they fall off the bone or even just taking all of your leftover herbs and spices that you're that you need to use up and stick it into some butter to solidify and throw in the freezer for later this has been some quality information to go along with recipes that are supposed to be simple and easy so folks get out there use a recipe that's like an outline but always keep your knives sharp 